uh, or shown us that politics won't solve our problems. <laughs> just, just interesting chaos, you know, interesting chaos. And there's a whole lot big, bigger problems going on in the world right now than our elections, I think. Uh, they're getting ready to adopt that Mount Sinai Accord of the Ten Commandments of Climate Change, and I can hardly wait to see what those are going to be. Uh, <clears throat> when you start thinking about evolution, and you start thinking about what can be the most evil applications of it, you come up with a whole lot of really bad things. Uh, euthanasia, doesn't it doesn't it seem like abortion plays right into that population control? Uh, there's just a lot of stuff that, that fits right into the evolutionary viewpoint. So <clears throat> anyway, we're here tonight to talk about Exodus 29, <laughs> see if I can stay on topic. Um, so if you would open your Bibles to Exodus 29 tonight, we're going to uh, take a look at what God tells Moses to do uh, for these priests and uh, to get them ready to ordain them, to sanctify them, to consecrate them, and to, and to kind of look at the different things that he is uh, telling Moses, this is what you need to do. It's interesting going through this. He's not saying just get it ready to make it happen. He said, you do this, Moses, and we'll point that out as we go through it. It's a second person masculine singular and he's talking directly to Moses and he says you do this so we'll see what those things are and then what it signifies so let's just take a moment for prayer push away all the distractions of the world for just a little bit and let's just let's just dine on this let's pray <clears throat> Father, we thank you again for your word. Father, without it, we wouldn't know which way's up and which way's down. Father, the way the world's got things twisted around, calling evil good and good evil. And Father, all we know to do is look to you. And that's what we should do all the time. So Father, I pray that tonight as we take a look at this, what some would call an innocuous piece of your word, I pray we would just see once again that all Scripture is inspired of you and it's all valuable. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Exodus 29, the outline of this chapter you see there in seven points. Uh, there's a preparation for the ordination service. This is going to be our really our first ordination of a priest, anything we know about ordaining a priest. And then they're going to offer a sin offering, which is quite interesting. The sin offering, why does it come first? Well, because the sin offering and trespass offering, as we'll see in the first part of Leviticus, were both required offerings. And the sin offering and trespass offering basically taught that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because they were required of everybody to offer up these offerings. And then we find the burn offering. The burn offering, gift offering, and peace offering were all voluntary offerings. The burn offering is a picture of the propitiation of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the righteousness and justice of the Father, that he satisfied the demands of 
of God's integrity. And that burnt offering is a picture of the fact that if you're going to be a priest, you need to be a believer. So look at the sequence of, of the way things are laid out in the chapter. And then he offers up and talks about the ram of ordination. There is a lamb of God, the real one, that takes away the sin of the world. Then there's going to be a meal. We're going to put this meal together for the priest, and it's going to be sanctified and set apart. One of the things I notice as I get older and I've enjoyed as I grew up was when we have special events, there's always food. Have you ever noticed that? We could make some of the fanciest food and maybe some of the most interesting side dishes ever invented in the history of the world. But we, can, we, have, we, we have fellowship. We have fun. We have conversation. We have that around the whole element of food. And that's what they've got here in this, in this sanctification service of these priests. There's a meal that goes with it. He tells them it's going to be perpetual offerings. They're going to have to do every day. It's a consistent reminder to the priest that they too are sinners. And then the whole purpose of the ceremony found at the end of this chapter. Now, an introduction to it, uh, a qualified male from the tribe of Levi began training at an early age. Now, that's after we get through the initial uh, sons of Aaron, the four sons of Aaron. They had to learn it. Others were called out of a particular tribe of Levi. And they started, uh, as they, they grew up, and these kids started growing and maturing. And by the time they got 40 years in the desert, they had some, some Levitical trees that were pretty well trained. That's what they were, what they were called to do. By the time of ordination, uh, he was ready to perform the required duties. Now, whenever they started training these young men, when it came time for their ordination service down the road, they were ready to perform the required duties. We do this a lot even with uh, pastors. Uh, with uh, They go through a period of training. You don't normally ordain a pastor whenever, right after they get saved. That wouldn't, wouldn't be good, and especially if you read 1 Timothy 3, which says not a novice. Now, that's a big problem. So it says... There needs to be some training. There needs to be some education is what needs to be done before someone's put in a position of authority uh, in the church. Note that qualifications and training were required before service, so he was not a new convert. And by the time of ordination, he should be mature. Now, <clears throat> 20 years old, they were required to serve in the military except the tribe of Levi. So that's telling us if they were going to serve in the military at the age of 20, that's probably about when they would start functioning early on as priests. And they would normally function, Levitical priests, from age 20 to age 50. So that was the common thing by the time of Christ. It was about a 30-year term of service. His training culminated in an ordination service that lasted one week. Now, our ordination service lasted about three hours, and that was way too long. <laughs> you know what everybody's ready to do at the end of that three hours? Go and eat, and that's what we, that's what we did. Exodus 29 is the divine design for this service, this service of the Levitical priest, and this is the way that God wanted it done. And it was actually carried out in Leviticus 8. That's whenever the actual service was, was done and Moses ordained these guys and all this. So there's going to be Moses training Aaron and his sons 
and then they are going to get ready for the the, the temple service, tra tabernacle service, ra rather. We do know in Leviticus 10, whenever they started the Levitical system and got ready to do it, Nadab and Abihu were the two sons of Aaron, and they just decided they'd do it their way. So were they not paying attention in Bible class and just didn't do it, or were they just flat-out rebellious? But God struck them both dead, so it didn't matter, does it? <laughs> he said, when I tell you to do this, pay attention. He's told Moses that, that you do it exactly according to the pattern that I showed you on the mountain. So <clears throat> in any event, I think uh, Aaron... When we read the other uh, information around that and the death of his two sons, I think uh, Aaron realized he was the one that was the problem. He didn't push them hard enough. He didn't demand enough out of them. He didn't train them as he should have. And he, ex he accepted and assumed a whole lot of responsibility for their failures. So verse 1 says... I'm reading out of the New American Standard, and then I'm going to do uh, this corrected translation. Uh, now, this is what you shall do to them. That's the English New American Standard. Literally, it says now, this is the thing. The reason I make a distinction here is because it introduces something new. In this case, it's a specialized priesthood instead of a family priesthood. So it's introducing <clears throat> something new that is a new priesthood. Because from Adam until this point in history, it was all family priesthood, where the patriarch of the family offered up the sacrifices for the family. They handed the priest off, uh, priesthood off to the oldest son. That's the way that it was done. So we can track that from... Uh, Adam, we can track it through Noah offering sacrifices. We can track it with Job, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can see that pattern of that family priesthood that actually went on for at least 2,500 years. So that was that was the priesthood. And this line here is saying this is changing. Okay, this is changing. It says you shall do to them literally as asah. It's to manufacture once again. This is the thing which you shall manufacture for them. To consecrate them. Consecrate is actually, a, I, I didn't put that word in the uh, handout, I don't think, but it's an infinitive of kadosh, to make them holy, to sanctify them, to minister as priest to me. He says, take one your bull and the two rams. It literally says, take one son of a herd bull. And the reason I'm, I made a distinction, the, the bull is a par, P-A-R is the Hebrew word that is, that is used there. Take, take a young bull, is what he's saying, and <clears throat> two rams. The word for ram is ayil, and it's from, it, ayil is a, is a word that is, its root means to be first or in front of. And it's pointing to the ram as the leader of the flock. So he's the, a ram is, is the male. And he says, I want you to bring two rams without blemish. Now, blemish is the word tamim. When I first ran into this word, <clears throat> it hit me um, 
as an important word. And I found it was all the way back in Genesis chapter 6, whenever it says, And Noah was a righteous man, tamim, blameless in his ways. Now, this is a word that looks primarily at being without blemish. It is the qualification of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12:5. this word, that he be physically perfect. When it's used in regards to animals, that's what it's talking about. This animal had to be physically perfect. And knowing the way a lot of people think, they say, well, if I'm going to kill, kill a valuable animal, I might as get... We'll get one that's ready to die. <laughs> so, rather, but the Lord is saying all the way through here, and we're going to see it more than once in this first paragraph through verse 9. We're going to see that, that he's saying, I want the best. I don't want you bringing me second best. I want the best. When he says, I want the first fruits, that's what he's talking about. He wants the best of what comes out of the womb. He wants the best dedicated to him. In verse 2, it says, an unleavened bread, matzot, which is uh, the word for unleavened, and lechem is the word for bread. Uh, lechem's one of those words kind of just rolls off your lips, isn't it? And when you put it together with bet, you get betlechem, Bethlehem. Bet means house. Lechem means bread, house of bread is what Bethlehem means. And where did the bread come down out of heaven? Interesting, isn't it? And unleavened cakes. <clears throat> now, a cake is a kala. It's used 14 times. And uh, there's really not a lot of help in the lexicons uh, about this. A bread is like a loaf pictured much like we have a, a loaf today. A cake is more of a round um, circular cake type of thing. And it's thick. It's got a like a... Uh, cornbread, like you'd make cornbread, and it it is a uh, it says an unleavened cakes mixed with olive oil. This word shemen is olive oil. You don't have olive in your New American Standard, but it should be in there. <clears throat> and unleavened wafers. This is a rakik, and it's only used eight times, and it means a thin cake. So you have the one that's just like a, a loaf like we know a loaf. You have another one that looks like a, a round clump of cornbread. And you have another one that's probably like those the thins or tortillas or something of that nature that are, that are thin. This is one of the questions I'm going to get there at the, the wedding supper of the lamb when we're all seated there together. <laughs> Which one was this? <laughs> Which one is this? Is this the... Is this the uh, uh, Lechem, is this the Kala or is this the Rakik? Which one is, is these? And we'll let somebody that really knows tell us what they are. <clears throat> it says, and you shall manufacture. Asa, once again, saying you got to put them together. Takes a little work to do this, but what are you, you going to do? You shall manufacture them of fine wheat flour. Now, wheat <clears throat> is the word kitah. C-H-I-T-T-A-H, only used 30 times. And everywhere you find wheat, it is, it is almost like fig trees. It's almost like pomegranates. Wherever you find, find wheat, you find blessing associated with it. And <clears throat> you shall manufacture them of 
fine wheat flour. The flour is the word solet, and it is, uh, that's not misspelled, by the way, when I have a little s with all those big capital letters that goes with there. There's two s's in the Hebrew alphabet. There's the, the sheen and then the samic, and this is the samic that starts this letter. Don't have a lot of words that actually start with the samic. Now, <clears throat> this says that it's ground from the inner, inner kernels of the wheat. It was expensive, and it was considered a luxury item. It was used by Abraham in Genesis 18, which we know that's when the three angels showed up. The Lord talked to him, I'll be back this time next year, and uh, you're going to have a son here. And the two other angels went down, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. <clears throat> we know the story, but we know Abraham made him a meal. And the meal was made from fine wheat flour. It's usually reserved for important guests. So this thing is saying that these, these are important. That says you shall manufacture them of fine wheat flour. In verse 3, and it says, and you. <clears throat> now, this is the singular, and it's Moses. It's a second person, masculine, singular. You, Moses. I don't want you to delegate this. I don't want you to find something else. I don't want you to tell them to dress themselves. I want you to do this. And you shall put them in one basket. Now, the word for put or place or set or firmly set is the word seeth and it's in words that go with that but that's not what we find in this paragraph it is the word nathan which is the word forgive so what it is saying is make these these loaves put them in a basket and he says and putting them in the basket shows a gift a gift of something that has been worked Okay. He says, in one basket, don't get three baskets, he's very specific, and present them in the basket along with the bull and the two rams. Now present is karav, it's in the hip field here, and it says, cause them, what the bread, the cakes, and the wafers, to draw near in the basket with the bull and the two rams. So, now the many specific details portray the importance of details of the priesthood. One of the things he's starting to teach Moses and starting to teach them. Because when he gets into the burnt offering and the sin offering, he's going to give specific instructions as to how he wants it done. How does he want the bull slaughtered? And it's, uh, it's some pretty cool stuff coming up because the offeror is supposed to lay their hands on the head of the bull, for example. And it's a picture of the imputation of sins. And it's not one of these, not, it's not just a loosely laying their hand there. The, the word that is used means to push down on it. In other words, to, to do it with intention behind it. That you are in giving the sins to this innocent sacrifice. And so it's, it's, it, the, the picture is beautiful that it, that it draws out. The sacrifices demonstrate the basis of their priesthood, which is the sacrifice of Messiah. 
Yeah, he was the bull. That's the burnt offering. That's what the bull is for. He is the peace offering as well. He is the sin offering and the trespass offering all in one. He knew no sin. Perfect, perfect specimen was made to be sin, imputed to him, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, this is to be the major subject matter that's taught. He's, he's giving them a quick lesson about Messiah. Messiah is going to take upon himself all the sins of the, the wicked, which is everybody on, on the earth. The unleavened bread is a reminder of the freedom portrayed at the exodus from Egypt. When you go back to where do you see unleavened bread, well, you see it in Egypt. They didn't have time to let it rise. They took it with them and went out, and it should have said, okay, you've been set free, okay, at a great cost. It should remind them of the grace displayed to them by their God, and thus the humility that they should have to conduct the services, the only reason they're out there, the only reason they've got any provision, the only reason they're doing this is because of the grace of God displayed to them to rescue them from slavery and to get them out of Egypt. <clears throat> this should... Uh, uh, the unleavened cakes mixed with oil portrays God's word without admixture to it. That's uh, of, without the admixture of evil, which is understood via the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The, the olive oil, in particular, has been used, is used throughout the Old Testament to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the anointing. And whenever you track it down, it's not hard to prove that's what it is. It's not a, not a stretch of the imagination at all. <clears throat> Especially when you realize Messiah, Mashiach, means anointed one. So when we start saying things mixed with oil, we should immediately start thinking about the Holy Spirit. And there's not supposed to be anything foreign put into these, into these things. So this is fine wheat flour. It is the best that you have to get mixed with oil inside of it. So you got perfection and adding the Holy Spirit into it. This portrays the importance of purity in the priesthood. Now, <clears throat> if the priest... At the first advent, was stopped long enough to think, what does this stuff portray? Why did God tell us to do it in a certain way? If they'd have stopped long enough to think, maybe they'd have realized that what was going on with the sacrifices. But instead, you know what the sacrifices became? You do, I, I know. The sacrifices became a moneymaker for them. Because they had set up in the temple... And that if you uh, if you didn't happen to bring a uh, offering with you that was acceptable because they had to approve all of them, then you had to buy one. So if you brought a bull and they said, "Oh no, 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 you can't bring that one. Is one leg shorter than the other, or whatever it is? Can't have that one. You have to buy another one." So they had a money-making scheme going on, and they were buying and selling in the temple. You see why the Lord went in through them out? Because they had turned what was to be a house of prayer into a, into a den of thieves is what it, what it was. The unleavened wafers anointed with oil portray authorization of the priesthood to communicate the word of God by the Holy Spirit. And uh, this, this is what I see with the wafers. They're, they're thin. They, they are 
important, although there's not as big, it doesn't seem as meaty, if you will, as the other ones do, but the uh, anointed with oil on top of them, who are these guys? Where are they coming from? And they're going to get to eat them. Nobody else getting to eat them right now, but the priests are. So, Now, these, these wafers portray the importance of the Word of God and, and the role of the Holy Spirit in teaching it. So the priest, if they're paying attention, then hopefully they'll get to learn some things from this and be able to pass it on. Now, are they going to know all the symbolism that we knew? Probably not. Did they need to? Not right then. Why? Because it was going to be revealed in progressive revelation, that's part of what God was doing, was showing them. And every time something else new came to the priest of Israel, then guess what? They go, oh yeah, that's what this, that's what this portrayed. Or that's what they could have. I don't know how many of them ever did. But they could have said, yeah, the lamb, the ram, that portrays this, this portrays this, this portrays this. Then they start class. I'd hate to have that on. <laughs> One time I might have given it a good run for it. Anyway. Alright, i got to get caught up here. <laughs> we good? Yeah, I, I could hear it, so I thought we probably were. Okay. Now, the, the um, it's what they have been given with these things is the divinely sanctioned authority to communicate the Word of God. The priest... <clears throat> They had three main roles, and one of which is teaching. Their job was to be taught and to teach. And so when people came to offer up these offerings, if the priests were doing their job, they were saying, this is our Redeemer. Okay, This is our Redeemer. This, this bull, this ram, represents our Redeemer. And so he is going to pay for our sins. We are not. But by the time of Christ, they had it all mixed up. And they really thought that that offering of that sacrifice, that work, see, was going to save them from their sins. And so if they thought that, then why did they need a Messiah? And that's part of why they missed him, a big part of why they missed him. Now, <clears throat> the wheat flour demonstrates the quality of service that the priesthood was to maintain. Okay, that's that was the fine wheat flour. It is supposed to be the best. That's what they were supposed to do. Do the best they could. They're provided with the best, and hence they should serve the best way they can possibly serve. So he's saying that this this should be taken seriously. There, it's going to be a ceremony. They're going to go through a lot of ceremonies over the course of their priesthood and of their life. And he's saying, no matter how many times you go through it. This should be important. This should be viewed with reverence and awe. The one basket brought by Moses. See, he's the one told to get the basket. He's the one told to put these in there, get the basket. Illustrates that Messiah, who's the anointed one, provides the resources for the priesthood to function. He's the one that brings it. Moses is a picture of the high priest, the great high priest on heaven's throne. Aaron is called the high priest, okay, but Moses is above Aaron. 
So he is a type of Christ. He is a picture of Christ. And the things that we find Moses doing, we find them doing as a picture of the Messiah himself. Now the priests are presented. He says, then you, verse 4, Moses, once again a singular, you shall bring. This is karav, a word in the hifil means cause to draw near. Usually whenever um, the word is used, it has the idea of drawing near, knowing what you're doing. Okay, not drawing near out of curiosity, (laughs) because you're drawing near because you know what you're supposed to do. Then you shall cause to draw near Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them. Now, this is the Cal Perfect with the um, well consecutive second masculine singular, the word rakats. Now, he says literally, you shall wash them. It's interesting, the Hebrew would rather use an imperfect tense to declare a command than it would an imperative. Now, the Greek is the other way. The Greek would rather, much rather use an imperative. And occasionally when you find a pure future tense used as an imperative, it's called a Hebraism. And that means that they are doing it like the Hebrews would do it. The Ten Commandments that you find, you shall have no other gods besides me. That's an imperfect tense, okay, which is the, the future tense. That's the way that it, that it is done throughout the Ten Commandments. It's not imperative. That it, that it is used there by form. And he said, now, <clears throat> uh, wash them, you shall wash them. Now, when this word is not qualified, and here it's not qualified, you shall wash them. Okay, when it, sometimes it's qualified with saying, wash your hands, wash your face, wash your feet. Sometimes it's qualified. When it's not qualified, it says all of it. It looks at a total washing, and this portrays salvation. Jesus taught this, John chapter 13, whenever he, whenever he was going to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter jumped up and said, well, just give me a bath. Because first he said no, and they said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And then Peter said, give me a bath. I said, Peter, you don't need a bath. Okay, you need your feet washed. Giving a bath is a picture of salvation. And this is what we have in this this picture. The first requirement of the priesthood is salvation. So Moses is going to do it. Now who clothes us with, with our clothing from on high? The Lord does, right? <laughs> I mean, this whole thing is a picture of, of what's going to happen with us one of these days. This whole thing is, is so beautiful because... Who clothed Adam and Eve? It's interesting, back in the garden, it says, and he clothed them with animal skins. It didn't say they clothed themselves, did it? They tried to clothe themselves with the fig leaves. didn't work. We have to have this external clothing in passive sense. We receive it, put, put upon us. And he says, so wash them. Now, it's kind of interesting that this, I believe, is a picture of water baptism. But they wouldn't know anything about that. Because water baptism 
was designed, it brought the, the Jews up through uh, John the Baptist and things, but water baptism was more designed for the church. The church at this point is a mystery. They are clueless about any type of dispensation in between the Redeemer and between the Conqueror. They, are at, there's, they have no information on it. Now they'll figure out, because it says in Peter, things into which angels long to look there, things into which the old men of old diligently sought, and were not able to see them, and now we're living in them. So the, the, uh, they wouldn't know anything about this, no way they could, and no way we should try to read the church back into this either. Because some people will take take this and try to read the church back into it. But what it is saying is a, it's a picture of salvation. And one day there would be a water baptism that would be a picture of salvation. So the priest should first know the reality before the ritual begins. Okay, the reality of salvation. The phrase causing to draw near usually indicates there's been a sufficient instruction and in protocols. Okay, he has instructed them, this is what you need to do. This You need to come here. You need to stand here, and I'm going to get the garden hose out, and we're going to wash you down is what we're going to do. He's going to clean them from head to foot. Now, I don't know if they stood naked in front of the tent. Maybe we'll be told more in Leviticus chapter 8 about it. But what happened, they, he, they were given a bath. That's what it says. They were clean. Does that sound like sanctification? Because cleansing often sounds like sanctification. They were being set apart and sanctified. The first qualification of a priest is salvation, portrayed by being totally bathed. Moses is the type of Christ does the washing. There are no more ceremonial baths portraying salvation. This didn't get put in with the rest of the nation of Israel. See, it didn't get put in there with the rest of the nation of Israel because it was not designed to be a picture for the age of Israel. But it is to uh, inaugurate a specific line of priests. And, you know, maybe that affects us too as believer priest in the church age that's who we are and water baptism very easily could have something to do with that being ordained as a believer priest there is a ceremonial washing of hands and feet portraying confession of sins but not portraying salvation there are ceremonial baths as a reminder of what Jesus did for us on the cross, these ceremonial baths are part of the hygiene code of the Mosaic Law. Okay, so there there were baths that needed to be taken from time to time. The bath for priests foreshadows water baptism for the church age, although this would not have been clear to the priest or even Moses. This would have been beyond his pay grade because the, the church age was clearly spelled out as a mystery but not spelled out until the New Testament. Baptism with water in the church portrays the accomplished fact of payment for sins by the Messiah. The reality of baptism is found in Romans chapter 6 verses 3 through 6 and that is we have been identified with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's what baptism is supposed to do. 
I've never thought much for sprinkling because it's real hard to sprinkle somebody and picture a death, burial, and resurrection. Okay? I, I have seen a um, couple of people sprinkled, and at least the priest, um, usually babies get the sprinkled, and at least the priest tried to get them wet, you know, which just thrilled that little kid to death. But anyway, um, either here nor there. Verse 5, the garb or the clothing of the priest. You shall take the garments and put on Aaron, literally cause to dress Aaron with the tunic and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastplate and gird him, which is interesting. It's the same <laughs> word translated gird is the same word used for ephod. So it basically saying is ephod him up. Okay, ephod him up. It was something like some southern slang we might hear from time to time, but that's what he's saying. Ephod him with a skillfully woven, skillfully is not in there, with a woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head. Again, it's firmly set. We saw that earlier in chapter 28. <clears throat> and put the holy crown and again the word put they're clear words in the Hebrew for put, place, set this is not them, it's not than it's the word for give so give the holy crown so the very use of the word says this is all grace for Aaron and Aaron better remember it he better remember it give the holy crown now the the word for holy is netzer. <clears throat> Used 25 times. Frequently, um, or actually the word for crown is uh, netzer. And it's a, the word netzer itself is a form of holiness. Okay, and it's something special. And it's used several times and translated as a crown, but it emphasizes purity, it emphasizes uh, various virtues like that. And then the word for holy is hakadosh. The word kadosh is the word for holy. But when it puts the ha on the front of it, that's a definite article. And it says literally here, give the crown of the holiness. Now that points us in a different direction. Rather than holy being used as an adjective here, it is talking about the holiness of the Almighty. It is a crown that has come from Him to take a very important place on the turban, on the, the, the top cap up there. So the proper attire is to be placed on Aaron by Moses in the proper sequence. So must the believer priest be properly attired to function correctly before the Lord. Now, if we were to look up Ephesians 6 and go to verse 10, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. And it's talking to us there about putting on the full armor of God. And it goes through and describes the full armor of God. That's our attire. Aren't we an interesting looking priest? Think about, put on the full armor of God and you got on your priestly clothes. Probably never thought about that, have we? We always see priests 
like this with the long robes and all these jewels and everything else that goes on it <laughs> and the full armor full armor of God is our clothing it's our battle it's with which we go into war to present our bodies a living holy sacrifice that's the full armor of God <clears throat> that's our garments in the church the holy crown is the sign of distinctiveness and the rank of our royal high priest it's interesting, the word for, for crown, as I mentioned, means purity, but it means separatist, separateness. It's special. It's special, and that's what holiness actually means, set apart for specific use. Hebrews chapter 5 through 9 talks about our great high priest on heaven's throne, according to the order of Melchizedek. And we see, is, does, he, does he have a crown? Yes, he does. So here is Moses <clears throat> handing off to Aaron, trying to establish the high priest as being a type of Christ. Now, that should humble people. I've talked to a couple people. We used to do a <clears throat> thing called the Living Lord's Supper back, this has been a long time ago, 30 years ago. We did it at camp, did it for kids. And, and uh, there'd be 12 that would play the various disciples and we'd take the pose of da Vinci's last supper and then we'd all be given things to say we'd dress up in costume and um, whenever the the time came the lighting would come on and it would light you up and then you were animated and you spoke the words that you had to say and then you went back into your pose it was a pretty pretty cool deal and taught the kids a lot however <clears throat> one person had to play jesus now, we always, whoever drew that straw, <laughs> we always gave them fits and clearly explained that they weren't worthy <laughs> of the position to which they readily agreed. But the thing about it is they said it humbled them to even be put in that position, to hold that seat in the middle of the table, if you will. That was a, a humbling thing for them and you would think this same thing would happen with these priests especially the high priest when they have these the special garments special clothing and everything else and it is Moses that is doing the coronation and passing this thing on it should have humbled Aaron now he did a real good job earlier didn't he with a golden calf so the very fact that he was still standing there should have been humbling to Aaron. And uh, anyway, so for Aaron, the emphasis is both on salvation from the penalty for sins and the power of sin. So here is a picture of giving them all a bath, the issue of uh, salvation from the penalty for sin and the power of sin. Because one thing we're going to find out about these priests, they were expected to be experientially holy. Now, we've called salvation from the penalty for sin, phase one. We've used that terminology before. Salvation from the power of sin, phase two. And this is what it should be. It should be for all priests. We should be saved from the penalty for sin and delivered from the power of sin 
even though we're going to battle it all of our lives. To function properly as a high priest depends on experiential sanctification. And that includes the mental and the functional application of God's revealed word. Now Moses here portrays the father ordaining his son for service. That's what he's doing. Here is Moses portraying the father ordaining his son to go out and be of service. It says, Then you shall take the olive oil of the anointing and pour it on his head and anoint him. <clears throat> now, a lot of kids would love the chance to pour oil all over their brother's head. Uh, we like to put dirt on each other's head, especially from behind when they weren't looking. I mean, those were the kind of things we did. But here, this is a very solemn ceremony. He says, take it, because the high priest <clears throat> was God's anointed one as a shadow of the anointed one, a shadow, not the reality, of the anointed one, Christ. And Christ's name means anointed one, Mashiach in the Hebrew. The high priest needed the ministry of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> From Acts chapter 10, interesting chapter, this is when Peter has this great sheet coming down out of heaven with all these unclean animals on it. And the Lord says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And he goes, Oh, Lord, not me. I know nothing unclean has ever touched these lips. I'm going to find out when we get to eternity if that was true or not. I just suspect Peter may have fudged a little bit on that. But anyway, the Lord said, Listen, Peter, kill and eat. These foods are all clean for you now. He says here, and you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing everyone who was oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So here is God the Father being with the Son, going about doing his priestly duties and that's what this is supposed to be whenever Moses hands off to Aaron <clears throat> as we as priests need the special anointing of the Holy Spirit we do Titus 3 verses 5 and 6 uh, beautiful passage he say, uh, this passage if we don't know it needs to be right at the forefront of our arsenal for giving the gospel because uh, this passage so many people you run into and they think, well, I'm, I, I need to be good enough. I haven't done enough good deeds. Have I done enough good deeds to outweigh my bad deeds? That's not it. You're not a Hindu. Okay? It's not about karma. Here's your passage. He saved us, <clears throat> not on the basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness. That's, it's not our works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 that passage needs to be right there at the forefront. This one needs to be with it. He says, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus, Messiah, our Savior. So 
How about this washing of regeneration? How's it all done now? First is spirit baptism, the moment of salvation. You're baptized by the Holy Spirit, entered into the body of Christ. We get this special anointing of, of the Spirit as priests. We need it. Galatians 4, verses 6 and 7 says, Because you're sons, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So we need the Holy Spirit for our priesthood to function properly. Under the Levitical priesthood, they did too. The Holy Spirit functioned from upon them. With us, he functions from within. It is a different type of anointing. In verse 8, and he says, And you, again a singular, Moses, pay attention here, shall cause to draw near his sons and put tunics on them. Literally, cause to dress them in tunics. Okay, so Moses, you're going to need all this stuff, and you're going to call his sons to him. And you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and bind caps, this is the, the headgear on them, and they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statute. A statute is, uh, when you start looking at different words, trying to figure out what they are in the Hebrew, and obviously the Old Testament's a lot bigger than the New Testament, 39 books and some of those chapters have 50, 60 verses. There's not but a handful of chapters in the New Testament that have anywhere near that number of verses in them. And so what you find is that uh, the statute, what does this mean? And you start looking up the words. Mishpat, coke is a word for statute. That's the masculine form. This is kuka, which is the feminine form for statute. And whereas the, the masculine emphasizes the statute itself, the feminine emphasizes the importance of a response. And that's what it's used for. A perpetual statute. So you priests are going to have to respond to it. You're going to have to get your heads right, get your hearts right, get your gear right, get the utensils right. There's a lot more for them to learn here. They're not nearly done with this, this Bible class. There's a lot more for them to learn, but that it's basically with a kuka, it's a statute that you have to decide to adhere to. It's up on you. So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons, and this is our crazy little Hebrew idiom, you shall fill the hand of Aaron and his sons, meaning provide for them. So <clears throat> the priests are bound to the demands of righteousness. The Aaronic priesthood was so ordained by God until the reality had come. The Levitical priesthood, Aaronic priesthood, that was what was going to function until Messiah came. Hebrews 7 verse 11 says, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood. It's interesting, Hebrews 5 through 9 contain a lot of verses that are really great, that are easy to forget. They, re they really are. Because when you start reading about the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, 
And then you start digging in, you end up at Psalm 110.1, which is about the only order mention of the priesthood of Melchizedek, but Messiah would be of the order of Melchizedek. And then you find four chapters, five chapters in the book of Hebrews that explain it. There's a lot of stuff in there that's not remotely familiar to you. So you have to learn it and go back through it. He says, perfection, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, I love this verse, of necessity there takes a place a change of law also. The priesthood is not frivolously changed. And God only ordained four priesthoods that we know of to this point. He's, that's all he has set up and established. With the family priesthood, Levitical priesthood, royal priesthood, millennial priesthood. Those are markers of the change of dispensation. That's when things change. When a priesthood changes, he makes laws to go with that priesthood. And so <clears throat> he says, but perfection, maturity... Your end result to what you wanted to be was through the Levitical priesthood. But it's not. Why would we need another priesthood according to Melchizedek? Because in the order of Melchizedek is where you find the perfection and the maturity. Armed with the proper mental attitude and the proper apparel, the priests were ready to function. Church age believers as priests are anointed with the Holy Spirit and are therefore authorized to function before God. Now think about this. They needed the, the authorization of the Holy Spirit to carry out their function as priests, Levitical priests. We have the Holy Spirit already inside of us. What does that tell us? This is part of why we're priests. We have access to the Holy Spirit. He's there inside of us. We carry him with us. We don't need any anointing oil or anything like that. Our priesthood demands a correct offering of spiritual sacrifices. Priesthoods, <clears throat> they were different as to form. They were the same as to function. Now that's a pretty easy thing to remember because what did the priest do? The priest was a teacher. It was his job to prepare the next line of priests. The priest was a teacher. That's, that's what he did. Priests led in worship of God. That's what they did. Where did the where did the the Psalms come from? Who got who got tasked with teaching people the Psalms of David and stuff? The priests did, and they offered sacrifices. What do we as priests do now? We learn so we can teach. By this time, you ought to be teachers. Hebrews five twelve. So we learn in order to teach. Present your body a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God. So we offer up sacrifices, only it's us and it's not animals. 1 Peter 2.4, a royal priesthood. Hebrews 13.15 and 16, let us, not, let us not forget to do good and share. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So here's a beautiful picture of in found in the 
in the sanctification ordination of Aaron by Moses that is just a foreshadowing of a priesthood that we would have and I think one that would be uh, the priesthood for into into the eternities whenever we look at it let's pray Father, thank you again for your mercy and grace and love and all your blessings and all your tests. Thank you for this beautiful and amazing picture. And Father, we just want to give you the glory for it. Thank you for letting us live in the time in which we live. And Father, I pray that we will be lights in the middle of this darkness. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.